Hello, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz, and with me is Ashea. This is Valar Reredis. Welcome to episode one of our Storm of Swords coverage. Since we're hitting a milestone by beginning book three, let's restate and reaffirm our goals and process here. Valar Reredis is, of course, as the name implies, our reread project. We will finish before the end of this year, before The Winds of Winter comes out. That's our goal. When we started this adventure, this process of a reread, we set a, an aggressive pace. It wasn't, I wasn't, uh, it was more aggressive than I thought it would be. So we're going to reduce that a little bit. We've dropped this news already, but not everyone's heard it, perhaps. It's been a little difficult keeping up with our other History of Westeros commitments. So Valar Reedus for A Storm of Swords is fewer chapters per week. So we can get back to our full slate of offerings, per se. Uh, our primary goal with Valar Reedus is to deepen our love and understanding of A Song of Ice and Fire. But another primary goal is to get to know the material and George R. R. Martin's style well enough that when the winds of winter comes, we'll all be a well-oiled machine ready to receive that new epic goodness. We'll be able to consume and understand it at a higher level than the average reader. And it's going to be a light, it's, it's likely to be epic and subtle and very detailed book. Of course, all of them are. So just going through this process and reading, rereading these books, it lets you know how much you missed the first time. So you want to be ready to catch things when the winds of winter drops. So with that in mind, we'll be using everything available to us, especially when it comes to foreshadowing and, and endgame discussions. We'll be uh, using, we use a wide variety of sources for that. We consider the sample cha- uh, winds of winter chapters, the TV show, fire and blood interviews, forums, anything else we can take advantage of, anything that is informative or useful or fills out the picture, we're going to use it. There's nothing we'll lay off of. Now, we're mostly about the books themselves, of course, but obviously there are some cases where outside material helps us solve a mystery or at least adds additional information or rounds out the process. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. After each chapter, we pause to reflect on what we've just done and answer any questions that have popped up during. But also, you can send questions in advance. Every week, we discuss the chapters in in advance of the episode. And we do that in a variety of places. Facebook is probably the main place. That's where we have the most people participating. And we have a wonderful group of mods and regular commenters there. We also have a great community on Flick, which is a little more private. It's a little more off the beaten path in terms of social media. There's no other stuff going on. It's very focused on the Song of Ice and Fire reread only. We're all going gonna to launch a Discord today. I've talked about it. I've kind of, hmm, I guess I procrastinated a little bit on it. But this is a good time to get that going. So if you're catching this live, it won't be up yet. But if you're listening to this after the fact, it should be up by then. And we also have a Slack channel. That's for patrons only. And you can, so you can join. If you're on uh, one of our patrons, you can join that. And again, thanks to all our patrons who make this possible. We're a niche podcast. And, you know, we can't really rely on sponsors. We get them from time to time. But we can't rely on that. There's, that's no way to make a living for us. We would not. Well, we wouldn't be able to. It's just that simple. So we really, really do appreciate everyone who supports us on Patreon or the variety of other ways you can support us. 
it really does make a huge difference. And it really is the reason we're here. I know we say that all the time, but that's because it's true. It's not just some, some line. <laughs> it's, not just a, it's not just a line. So, uh, and it's true for me too. I'm, I think that in the future or the way things are going right now, supporting things you love directly is the way uh, society is kind of headed, at least a portion of society. And that's, that fits me really well. I was a podcast listener before I was a podcast consumer or podcast maker rather. And I still am today and I use Patreon to support a lot of the other shows that I listen to. So yeah, I love it. And I hope you guys do too. A couple of super chats from our good friend, Maura Lee. Love History of Westeros and all the fabulous content, especially the Valerita series when you go over the chapters in the books. Shay is queen and the best and always. Cats rule. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Cats do rule. Occasionally, they make an appearance on our show, but uh, we'll see if that happens today. Today, we are doing the first four chapters of A Storm of Swords. The first one is the prologue. The gang plans a mutiny, a.k.a. the one where the others attack the fist. Next, we have Jamie One. The gang flees River Run, a.k.a. the one where Brienne sinks the competition. <laughs> Catelyn One. The one with Tansy, a.k.a. the gang's pissed at Catelyn. Arya One. The gang runs away, a.k.a. the wolf pack versus the bloody mummers. Oh, yeah. We also got another super chat. Oh, okay. From Nina. Oh, hey, Nina. Thanks she for that. She said, love for a new reread. Don't know if I'll be able to stick around for the whole show, but hearts to Ashea and Aziz. Right Thank on. You, Nina. Thanks, Nina. Nina is one of our main contributors. Uh, her name pops up at least a couple times every episode. Okay. This book, it's long been my favorite. It is in part because it has so many wow moments and plot resolutions, and in part because it's the longest. Well, it's not actually longer than dance, but it's close. It's, I'm not a quantity over quality guy, but all of this is high quality. I mean, what would you rather have? 900 pages of awesome or 800 pages of awesome? It's pretty straightforward. I could say Storm of Swords page per page is identical to Clash, and Storm would come out ahead because it's longer. And I don't know that Storm is identical to Clash, but I'm just saying, if it was, that's an argument for Storm. It's probably more than that, though. As experienced a writer as George R. R. Martin was before he started A Song of Ice and Fire, he had never written anything like this. M meaning, I don't even mean like successful like this. I mean just the size of it. The, the fact that it's an epic. George hadn't written a fantasy epic or a sci-fi epic or any kind of epic before. Most authors go their entire career without ever writing an epic. They, could, they might write dozens and dozens of books, but an epic is a whole different ballgame. It's a much bigger project, and it's much more complicated. It's easier to, to make mistakes, things like that. So this shows up, the fact that George is getting more used to what he's doing. He's kind of, maybe you could say he hit a groove. The pacing changes from A Game of Thrones to A Clash of Kings are a, a notable change, for example. And The Game of Thrones was written as if it was going to be part of a trilogy. A Storm of Swords and A Clash of Kings have almost identical average chapter lengths, though. So it seems like that shift happened pretty early. Storm of Swords is also the first of the books with an epilogue. Feast and Dance have one, too. I imagine that The Winds of Winter will, too, though I'm not so sure about the final book, because a lot of us think the last, last, last chapter will be Bran. And if it is, that probably won't be an epilogue, because he's a main POV character. So we'll have to see. That's, that's really, really getting ahead of ourselves. George R. R. Martin sat down to write A Game of Thrones as a professional, pushing his creative boundaries. But by the time he got to A Storm of Swords, he had gone through that process twice. He had written two instances in his epic series. So again, 
Storm of Swords, he had more experience going in. Plus, he had more experience with the world he was building. It was more settled. It was more complete. Related to that smoothness or not, I don't know, you know, I'm guessing here. But the book opens with all the POVs getting a chapter before any of them get a second chapter. They each get one before anyone gets a second, except for Sam. His first comes in part four. This is similar to Davos and the Clash of Kings, who didn't get his first chapter for a while because the prologue was Crescent and Davos was in that. So it's kind of the same thing because Sam is in this prologue, which is, of course, where we start. Let's do it. Prologue. The gang plans a mutiny, a.k.a. the one where the others attack the fist. Maybe we should have called it the one where the Night's Watch gets fisted. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) I recently decided that Chet is the human embodiment of the word of. It's a bit of a test, really. Disgust is not an emotion conducive to understanding, but Song of Ice and Fire is a series where you really have to keep your eyes and ears peeled and your mind open or you miss things. So it's interesting that being disgusted can kind of shut some of that down. So you got to kind of undo, you got to work around your own disgust. There's details in this chapter, but it's difficult, right? It's hard to (laughs) not be disgusted. The chapter starts off thusly. The day was gray and bitter cold, and the dogs would not take the scent. Most of us barely had an opinion of this guy prior to the chapter, but right off the bat, he's kicking dogs, starving, freezing dogs. Pretty good way to quickly get a reader to dislike someone. But there's plenty more where that came from. They were supposed to be hunting a bear, just like Chet's conspiracy against the old bear. Ha ha, little joke there. We criticize his planning, the old bear that is, but he's basically a good guy, right? I mean, he's not a bad person. We just think that his ranging beyond the wall wasn't such a good idea. Funny too, because Chet comes up to him and says, we couldn't catch the bear. And he says, a pity. (laughs) It's kind of funny that he's sort of talking about himself. They don't actually kill him. But they kind of do later. And that's an interesting part of this chapter that I think is uh, flies under the radar. And it's a big part of what we'll discuss here. Chet's plan is a mix of impressive and stupid. I can see why he wanted someone big and dangerous, like Small Paul. But Small Paul in a conspiracy? That might not be the smartest guy to include. But having the whole plan collapse because it snowed is also perhaps... I don't know. I, I feel like the possibility of snow north of the wall should have been considered. (laughs) But he certainly thought this through a lot more than Theon. On the other hand, his planning and understanding with regards to how the various commanders and officers would react to their desertion is insightful. He kind of nails that part pretty well, which, to be fair, that's also the part Theon got right pretty well. He seems to understand their personalities pretty well. Of course, it's his general thoughtfulness that encourages his conspiracy against them in the first place. He is certain that if he doesn't do this, they're all going to die. That, to him, justifies just about anything. I mean, this isn't exactly a moral guy, but he doesn't feel bad about killing men who were doomed anyway. Of course, Chad is way off on his justifications. They aren't necessarily all doomed, but he's not wrong that it looks bad. Very, very bad. The idea that they're going to attack the wildlings does seem suicidal, and that's what this chapter reveals, is that it sounds like the officers are going to leave the fist and attack the wildlings rather than using this strong defensive position instead. Chet's men are alarmed to hear that there's a vanguard of 500 wildling cavalry in the wildling army when 12 is a lot by wildling standards. So this is really scary to them. 
The melting pot nature of the watch is highlighted by the inclusion of so many rank and file members here, particularly those in Chet's conspiracy. Those are obviously a big focus of this chapter. There's 14 men in this conspiracy. Uh, Chet, Small Paul, Dirk, Sweet Donald Hill, Softfoot, Sawwood, Allo Lophand, Clubfoot Carl, Maslin, Lark the Sisterman, Raleigh of Sisterton, and three more guys who were probably Lark and Raleigh's cousins. Because we don't get any more names, but we do hear that Lark and Raleigh have some cousins that are involved. Lark the Sisterman is from the Sisters, which are the islands that represent the northernmost part of the Vale. Davos ends up there at the start of A Dance with Dragons on his way to White Harbor, which is just north of the Sisters. So one of the other conspirators is Alo Lophand, who is from Tyrosh and plans to escape back there. Sweet Donald Hill, meanwhile, claims to be a Lannister bastard. Chet himself is from Hag's Mire. I mean, George really leaned into this Ugg aspect of Chet by making him from Hag's Mire. I mean, it apparently got that foul-sounding name because it really is that foul. <laughs> Hag's Mire is revealed to be in Frey territory. That doesn't help it seem better, does it? And it was Walder Rivers who had him sent to the Wall. And like so many others, he went with Yorin when he traveled to the Wall. Though this conspiracy never even starts thanks to the snow and the attack by the others, some of the conspirators do escape, and many of the others they intended to kill are indeed killed during the attack. Lark the Sisterman, Softfoot, Small Paul, and Chet all turn into whites, and they're seen coming after Sam and Gilly later. Maslin is killed in the battle, probably whited also. Sawwood's fate is unknown, but he probably died in the battle too. It's a bad sign if you were at the fist and you haven't been seen since. Let's put it that way. Raleigh of Sisterton, Lark's cousin, does make it to Craster's Keep along with Dirk and Allo Lophand and Sweet Donald Hill and Clubfoot Carl. When the mutiny breaks out, the group Minus One predictably joins it. Raleigh has an embarrassing death. Uh, when the mutiny breaks out, he heads up the ladder to have his way with one of Craster's wives, but he falls out of the loft and breaks his neck. You hate to see it. <laughs> Alla Lophand is the one to kill Lord Commander Mormont. He stays at Craster's after the mutiny and is also among those killed by cold hands, then eaten by Bran and his group unknowingly. So he didn't exactly make it back to Tyrosh. This was likely the same fate that Dirk and or Clubfoot Carl had as well, because they also both stayed at Craster's. It's just their bodies are harder to identify. Allo has the missing hands, so it was easier to tell with him. Sweet Donald Hill, on the other hand, is the lucky one, but apparently also he had a change of heart. He was the minus one, I mentioned. He's the one that was part of Chet's conspiracy, but did not join the mutiny at Craster's Keep. And instead, he fled south. Perhaps there was some karma, because as far as we know, he's still alive at the wall. He's one of the guys who shoots, uh, one of the four men who shoots fake Mance Raider, that's actually Rattleshirt, when he's burning to put him out of his misery. I love this bit of gallows humor from apparently very long ago. Maslin, again, who's one of the conspirators, clearly one of the ones who's joined because of fear, because he's so afraid that when Mormont is giving a speech, he yells out, we'll die. And Mormont responds, many of us, the old bear said, mayhaps even all of us. But as another Lord Commander said a thousand years ago, that is why they dress us in black. Remember your words, brothers for we are the swords in the darkness, the watchers on the walls. Maslin is shown to be in the conspiracy out of almost pure fear, as I said. So Chet's motivations are more of a mix. Yeah, there's fear, but there's also revenge. 
He doesn't just want to kill the ones who can track them. He wants to kill the man who put them in this danger in the first place, Mormon. And of course, as we see, he really, really wants to get Sam too. He's a very bitter and vindictive person, right? Just as he's thinking of his crime, the reason he was sent to the wall, that is, stabbing a girl who mocked him, he aims to commit an act of revenge similarly inflated. Killing someone for, quote-unquote, a crime that does not deserve killing. Uh, it's very telling that when the snow starts falling, he thinks, it's not fair. Like, fair? What does fair have to do with it? Is that really where your mind goes when it starts snowing? It's a reaction that shows how off-kilter his sense of justice is. This guy has entitlement issues. He also had a horrible upbringing. There's no denying that. This has shades of Ramsey and Roos. Is it a coincidence that Arya's final chapter in A Clash of Kings features Roos all laid out with leeches covering him for the first time? And then this chapter, so soon after, where Chet's father is covered in leeches and is a leech man, basically? It's probably not a coincidence. Chet and Ramsey had bad fathers. Chet, again, he refers to himself as a leechman's son, and that's not the worst description of Ramsey either. And then Chet just flat out thinks of if he had a banner, it would be 12 leeches on a field of pink, the Bolton color, right? So, hmm. Chet once smashed a leech that attached itself to his hand when helping collect them for his father. His father beat him bloody for that. Feeling revulsion at leeches is pretty normal, I think. I think most of us would be pretty darn disgusted by a leech attaching itself to our hand or any part of our body. Arya is an exception. Roos is an extreme exception, so far apart from normal human reactions that he actually embraces that which disgusts almost everyone else. It's really telling. But we're not talking about Roos. Jet's father learned to do this out of necessity. He learned, he, he just had to make a living but he beat his son out of that revulsion. Apparently, this father felt revulsion at the notion of losing one-twelfth of a penny. Leeches are one or twelve for a penny, apparently. But no such revulsion at beating his son repeatedly? Eh, priorities, people. Sam and Chet are also worth a comparison here. Sam also had a bad father, right? Personality can go a long way, though. Sam is terrible at archery, but his friends are gathered around him, cheering him on, cheering him on. It's a support system. Like, they're helping him. They're, these are good friends, right? Pretty much the opposite of Chet. <laughs> Chet's conspirators are all terrible people for the most part. Dolorous Ed even insults Chet, backing Sam up. He, like, insults Chet to, uh, in response to Chet insulting Sam. You love, you love to see it. <laughs> so Sam missed out on many of the benefits of being highborn, right? He just because of the way he was treated, because of his personality. But there's no doubt Sam's education made a huge difference. This is where Sam and Chet diverge pretty strongly. This is, in fact, how he was able to steal, quote-unquote steal, Chet's job in the first place. John would not have been able to convince Eamon to take him on if he didn't have those skills. Chet thinks, laments almost, about how he has no skills. And thus, he'll have to take what he wants to make his way the rest of his life which is a pretty strong argument for education, <laughs> as an aside. Lark could go home if he liked, and the damned Hiroshi too, but not Chet. If he never saw Hagsmeyer again, it would be too bloody soon. He had liked the look of Craster's keep himself. Craster lived high as a lord there, so why shouldn't he do the same? That would be a laugh. Chet, the leechman's son, a lord with a keep. His banner could be a dozen leeches on a field of pink. But why stop at Lord? Maybe he should be a king. Okay, I take it back. Earlier I said his plans aren't as bad as Theon's. Never mind. 
<laughs> he's, he's nominating himself king, just almost just like Theon did. Theon's like, oh yeah, I'll go to the wall. I'll surely I'll be Lord Commander in no time. This is very similar. It's like, yeah, king. Ah, that's it. I can be a king. Sure, why not? <sighs> this also reveals a major piece of motivation, right? Dirk and Allo and Raleigh of Sisterton didn't kill Craster and Mormont simply because of desperation and tensions boiling over. Craster's mutiny, or rather the mutiny of Craster's keep, was started by the same people who were in Chad's conspiracy. They had already planned on killing Mormont, and they had already planned on taking Craster's Keep as their prize. That is a major detail that I think really gets lost in the shuffle. It wasn't just some, oh, these, some men were mad and they killed Mormont. It was the same men who were planning on killing Mormont and these other officers and running away before the battle. So they, know, they were no longer in danger of being ordered to attack the Wildling Army when they were at Craster's Keep, because obviously by then, most of the Watch had been slaughtered. But they still kind of wanted that prize. They, they probably had it in their mind, like, we're going to have Craster's Keep, it's going to be ours. They probably were already, in their minds, they'd already won it. So they probably thought it was the same sense of entitlement that Chet is feeling. They felt like they deserved it, like it was already theirs. George R. R. Martin did a lot of work in fleshing out these individuals. It's really fascinating and interesting that all these small characters, you, there's a lot of detail if you, if you take the time or uh, listen to us <laughs> who have already taken the time to piece it all together. So yeah, brutal and dangerous men like this were only ever kept in line by the rest of the watch. They knew if they got out of line, they'd be killed. But they were put in a situation here at the fist where they'd probably be killed anyway. So to them, it's like, well, this is worth the risk now. Before, it wasn't worth the risk. And the chance got better for them because so many of those good men keeping them in line died. The good men, the problem with being the good men is that you're also likely to be the ones to put yourself in the most danger, the ones to likely uh, work the hardest to try to save your comrades. And these, these, these jealous, entitled feeling guys who were not great men are the most likely to run off and stab their friends in the back. Part of this is on Gior Mormont. Again, again, we got we to complain about his planning. He knows what the watch is. He knows who these people are. He knows their crime. Every single man who joined the watch, he knows what crime they committed out there before they got to the wall. And he knows that most of them committed some pretty bad crimes. Like, Half these guys in Chet's conspiracy did really, really bad things. We don't know what Small Paul did, but Chet's obviously murdered a girl for just insulting him. Uh, Softfoot was a repeat rapist. Uh, a lot of these guys are really terrible. The mutiny at uh, Craster's Keep is going to be in Samwell 2, which is chapter 34, part 8 of our coverage. And of course, before that, we'll have Sam 1, where we see the actual flight to Craster's Keep. So more of that when we get there. But how great is the end of this chapter, though? We move past Chet into something much bigger, something we've been waiting for, for since the prologue of A Game of Thrones, the return of the others, seeing them again. The horn blasts, one after the other. What an incredible way to build tension. I mean, you just, just like the characters are, wait, is there going to be another blast? So are we. <laughs> What's funny too is this is a real irony. Uh, the horn blasts saved Sam's life. Chet was like, I'm going to go kill that guy. But then he was so terrified by the sound of that third horn blast that he, he already had the dagger out, but he just, well, he peed himself at that moment. And which is funny because earlier he had accused Sam of pissing himself. And now Chet is the one to do it. You hate to see it. <laughs> Shout out to the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show every week. 
he picks up where we're at and adds even more detail. Joe is excellent at his coverage here. And as we've here at History of Westeros, I'd like to think that we're hitting our groove like George. Like I said with George, we're getting better at analyzing chapter by chapter as we go through. And it would make sense that Joe is as well. And I can tell his analysis is, is, was already strong when we got started. But, but just like me, I feel like he's getting a little more insightful, getting a little more synced with his, with his takes. So let's hear a few of them. And definitely check out the Isle of Faces podcast if you get the chance. If we're pattern hunting, uh, then we look at the, the string of prologues here. Game of Thrones, others. Flash of Kings, Politics of the South from the point of view of a maester. Now Storm of Swords, back to the others. Feast for Crows is going to be in the South with a maester in training. And then Dance, best is, is set above the wall again with Varamir. And then from what we know, Winds of Winter's first chapter of the prologue is going to be set in the Riverlands. It may not be a maester or a maester type character, but it's back in the South. And leaning towards a maesterly type character makes some sense given that pattern. But I don't know if two is a pattern, but the North, South, back and forth, that seems to be a bit of a pattern. If we think about it, this is by far the most important prologue of any of the books in a lot of ways, right? Waymar's death drags Benjen off, but you have to go far down the reaction chain. Stannis' thrust into kingship is huge, but hardly contained to Crescent's point of view. Obviously, that's a huge part of all of Clash of Kings. We simply have no idea what the ramifications of Page Chapter are yet. And Vermeer is more a warning about things coming to Bran and Jon as far as second life and all that. It's, it's, it's a bit of a reveal, but it's not a big reveal. It's more fleshing out of things we already know. This prologue, though, this is the confirmation of everything hinted at through John's story. Everything we've forgotten since the very first chapter of the series, but we're waiting for, it's the confirmation that an army of the dead are coming south, and that is going to be huge. A reminder that Catelyn and Rob travel back through Hagsmire on the way to the twins. I guess Hagsmire, nothing good happens at Hagsmire. Catelyn actually returns there as Lady Stoneheart during Feast and is pursued by Black Walder Frey according to Jamie for A Feast for Crows. And it's also worth remembering that Gior's 300 are not 300 knights. Perhaps the wildlings lack discipline, but so do a percentage of the ranging. Again, small mistake, or maybe a large mistake for Gior to think that all of his men are, you know, so good. <laughs> Some of them are ready to run off, and, and he should have remembered that. Some of his other officers really should too. Shouldn't pin it all on Gior. Some of these other guys weren't giving very good advice. A couple of random questions and thoughts from y'all. Nina says, the irony of Sam stealing Chet's job is that even if it didn't happen, Chet still went on the ranging. <laughs> like, right? Chet's like sitting here mad. It's like, I could have been back at the wall. It's like, why would you think that? Sam is up here with you. <laughs> you would be doing Sam's job up here instead. You would, you would be tending to the ravens instead of the dog. It's really not that different. So I want to ask y'all, did you fear for Sam? I mean, he wasn't a POV yet. Obviously, on the reread, you didn't, obviously. But he wasn't really established as a character that just had to live on. He wasn't someone you look at and was like, oh, this guy has major things to do later. I think at this point, we can make that assumption or guess and, and say Sam has big things to do. But I don't know if we had that in mind way back in A Storm of Swords or Clash of Kings. It doesn't seem like Sam seemed like a, a cool guy, an interesting character fun character, but not necessarily someone that just had to lie. He didn't necessarily have big plot armor. So I'm curious for if you guys, to, for you guys to weigh in on that and what you felt in that moment. The Raven, we always got to keep an eye on the Raven. It said meet men and die in three different statements. So if you put that together, men are meat 
and then <laughs> when they die. <laughs> so yeah, yikes. Tansy is mentioned here. Of course, Tansy is going to come up in the Catlin chapter two away from now, but Chet actually, when he's thinking of the flowers he picked for the girl he killed, Bessa, I believe was her name, Tansy was one of the flowers he picks. So that's cool. George doing a little dot connecting, sort of setting it up a little bit. Archmaster Rennie from Flick points out that cold really becomes a character in its own right in this prologue. Mormont spits and it freezes before it hits the ground, which means it's like 40 below-ish. My own experience with 40 below is that Celsius and Fahrenheit are almost the same when they get that low, which is like, it's just a quirk of the formula. It's, it's kind of strange. I, was in, I happened to have been in Ottawa on the cold, one of the coldest days in the history of Ottawa. And that's when I learned that. Yeah, it was very cold. So, th- so this is also strange, uh, the, the level of cold, because John is farther north and he's not dealing with this kind of cold. He's dealing with cold, but it's not this bad. And Bran and company are fleeing Winterfell and they have autumn weather. And, you know, it's pretty far south, but it's not that far south. So this seems to be strong evidence that the others brought this additional cold with them. That's why it's so cold. That's why it's unusually cold. It's because of the others. Maybe that's why Chet was so surprised by the snow. Maybe we're not giving him enough credit for that. Stephanie wants us to think about those poor lookouts who blew the horn three times. Yeah? I mean, those guys were going to, a couple of them were going to get killed by Chet and his men so they could make their escape. Think of Orel and the scene with Theon where he says, when would you blow your horn when these direwolves are rushing right at you? So these are brave dudes. I mean, it's not just burn, burn, burn. You don't blow the horn three times really fast. You blow the horn once, you pause to make it clear that it's a second blow. And then you pause to make sure there's a third. And this is, we see this play out because Sam and Chet have brief exchanges between horn blasts. So uh, these guys who are, Seeing the army of the dead coming towards them, they have the courage to stand their ground. And well, maybe they're moving as they blow the horn. Maybe they're running away and blowing the horn at the same time. That's probably what I would do. But it's still, I mean, they didn't lose it. They didn't just freeze in fright and and fail to do their duty. So shout out to those random guys. Noga Frankel adds some additional Sam Chet parallelism, more of opposition. Chet doesn't think he deserves the wall despite being a murderer. Sam truly didn't deserve the wall. Chet plans to forcibly take a wife, daughter of Craster's, while Gilly goes with Sam willingly. In fact, she's the one who is probably more about the suggestion in the first place. Chet believes the world owes him things. Sam barely mentions being robbed of his birthright. He does not act like someone who the world owes things. Noga thinks Sam won't ever kill another human being. That's an interesting possibility. I like that thing. That Sam will never kill a person throughout the entire series. He's certainly killed another, although we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah, I could see that. That's a good call. We'll have to, we'll have to see if that holds. John O'Donnell and Nina both point out that Small Paul is a nod to Lenny Small from Of Mice and Men. I read Of Mice and Men in like seventh grade. I don't remember very well, but I do recall that Lenny Small was a very large man who, you know, was one of these sort of a prototypical tropey large guy who can't help but hurt things because he's so big. He accidentally does harm. I don't remember. He's a Hodor, well. except happens with Hodor because Bran's in him, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's kind of a tragic figure because he's just uh, like a, a, a giant, gentle giant, I guess. Maybe I'm remembering. Right. I think he's definitely a very tragic figure. Okay. I don't think it's kind of. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's just my, I just don't remember the book very well. <laughs> 
Now, uh, speaking of small Paul, though, uh, in World, there's the reference to him being called thick as a castle wall. A lot of people asked about this, whether that is meant to be a tie-in to Brienne. And of course, Brienne, uh, and rather not just Brienne, but Sir Duncan the Tall. Sir Duncan the Tall's descendants are in Westeros, several of them, and there are little clues out there to connect who they are. 19 times, Dunk, uh, the, the phrase thick as a castle wall comes up in, in the three Duncan egg stories, but only four times in The Long of Ice and Fire. This chapter is one of them. Pip says it to Gren in Sam 2. He calls, uh, he says, Gren is thick as a castle wall, which is the same chapter with the mutiny at Crastridge, by the way. Jamie says it to Brienne in Jamie 5, and then Brienne thinks it to herself as she's crossing the, the Pine Barrens in uh, Cracklaw Point. She sees a, a bed of pine needles as thick as a castle wall. So, I do think these are nods to uh, clues, rather, that Duncan the Tall is the ancestor of Brienne and Small Paul and perhaps Gren as well. But we're not sure about that. I'm, I don't think he's an ancestor of Sandor, but that's actually that people bring that up in our next chapter. So I'll hold on to that. Nina said she knew too much about the series to fear Sam getting killed. Newt Rock 44 said thought Sam was getting shanked. Uh, Jaded Redhead was afraid for Sam as well. Snatch Face the Fool. I was thinking more of the old bear about to be killed because he, was, he meant more to, the, to John at that time. Hmm, okay, interesting. Ridiculous Ed Tollett says, at this point, Sam had the horn. I wasn't too scared for him. Okay, right on. A lot of people were afraid for him. A couple of people weren't. Cool. And I was very curious about that. Let us do now Jamie won. The gang flees River Run, a.k.a. the one where Brienne sinks the competition. This is a special milestone on the reread. Jamie is an enormously popular character, made more popular due to his portrayal on TV by Nikolai Coster-Waldau. And for many of his chapters, we also have Brienne, an enormously popular character, made more popular by her portrayal on TV by Gwendolyn Christie. Our coverage of this chapter will be, to some, a sermon on why Jamie chapters are so highly regarded. And to others, it will be, to keep the church metaphor going, preaching to the choir. You all already know why Jamie chapters are so highly regarded. But this chapter is, is wow. We talk a lot about how many meanings George R. R. Martin packs into certain sentences, paragraphs, whole books, whatever. So I, this chapter is just full of that. It's a real, I mean, so many of the chapters do that, but this one really stands out to me as an, ex, as an example beyond others of packing a lot into a single sentence or two. So how surprised were you when you saw that we'd have a Jamie POV? Similar question that I asked you about whether you were afraid for Sam. So weigh in on that in the chat if you don't, if you, if you have thoughts on it. And the first line of the chapter is. An east wind blew through his tangled hair as soft and fragrant as Cersei's fingers. Hair that he'll not have by the end of this chapter. Are Cersei's <laughs> fingers that fragrant? <laughs> Sorry. I guess they're soft. I don't know. Yeah, fragrant. Yeah, Cersei's fingers are fragrant. What, where has she been rubbing her fingers? <laughs> so obviously a lot of things that happened in the show won't happen in the books. The Stoneheart cliffhanger we're waiting on is a rather clear example. And there are a lot of smaller examples right away, like Nikolai Coster-Waldo did not cut his hair off <laughs> for the equivalent of the scene on TV. Another one of the changes is the very standard Hollywood change. Jamie and others mock Brienne for her looks on TV. They mostly just talk about her size and the fact that she's a woman fighter since, well, it, it just doesn't fly. Calling Gwendolyn Christie ugly, that just doesn't work. I mean, you're like, what? What are you talking about? She's beautiful. It's, it's the same. It's the case in all TV, by the way, yeah. where it's just rude. <laughs> also, they're like, you're so ugly. And you're like, 
but she's beautiful. What does that say about everyone else? Yeah, it's like that episode of The Office where where uh, where um, Kelly is like, if you think, uh, if you think, uh, what, 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 uh, what Amanda Pete yeah, or whatever. Uh, yeah, no, it's um, it's the from Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, anyway, if you think she's not enough... Hillary Swank. Well, Hillary Swank. If you think Hillary Swank isn't pretty, then what does that say about me? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. You can't go calling Gwendolyn Christie ugly. That's just it's like, what? <laughs> and it's the same thing they do with Tyrion. People don't really call Tyrion ugly on the show. They call him... I mean, they talk about his scar, but come on, that's he's handsome as hell. And that scar just... He just kind of looks cool. <laughs> so they just talk about his size. It's the same thing. They just, that's the insult that they use on TV is calling him small, calling him half man, whatever. So Gwendolyn Christie gets the opposite. Now, this all happens right away in this chapter. Jamie just starts ripping into her immediately. And though she's a match for him with swords, she's not that great with words. Uh, she's better with words on TV because the internalized nature of some of their thoughts doesn't work as well on, on the show. You got to have more dialogue. He's so rude, he's mean. Even Sir Cleos is like, man, you're going too far. And of course, uh, Jamie is a bit hypocritical about it as well because he's like, don't speak ill of Cersei. You know, like... <laughs> so as awful as he is to her, though, she has some preconceived notions about him as well. Ones that she's going to eventually rethink as they spend more time together and she gets more perspective. She calls him Kingslayer pretty quickly and she calls him Monster right away. It's fitting that she goes off in search of Sansa because they have similar naivete with regards to knights. We see this when she stops to bury the women they find hanged. This was not chivalrously done, said Brienne when they were close enough to see it clearly. No true knight would condone such, such wanton butchery. True knights see worse every time they ride to war, wench, said Jamie, and do worse, yes. Hey, Sandor, is that you? <laughs> I'm referring to Jamie, but Jamie thinks she's like Sandor. We're not realizing how much he himself sounds like the Hound. You are under my protection, she said, her voice so thick with anger that it was almost a growl. He had to laugh at such fierceness. She's the Hound with teats, he thought. Well, that's a comparison we've made many times. Well, not the Hound with teats. We didn't use that language, but just comparing Brienne to the Hound. And Jamie as well, just this triumvirate of knighthood and knightly duty and, and uh, protecting Stark kids and all that, or especially the daughters. But of course, George R. R. Martin doubles down on this comparison, but he does it much more sneaky in this quote. My name is Brienne, she repeated, dogged as a hound. Lady Brienne? She looked so uncomfortable that Jamie sensed a weakness. Or would Sir Brienne be more to your taste? He laughed. Dogged as a hound? We see what you did there, George. Now compare that quote to this one. It follows the same pattern. It starts with a declaration of an uncertain name, then a reductive rhetorical question. Sam the Slayer, he said by way of greeting. Are you sure you stabbed another and not some child snow knight? In both cases, there's probably a huge plot clue in there. Uh, the first one is that Jamie will knight Brienne in the books as he did in the show just as the others on the show are revealed to be the children of the forest version of knights, a.k.a. some child's snow knight. So in summary, that's like two lines of dialogue. <laughs> but we get characterization, we get foreshadowing, masked as mockery. We get wording that calls on a character who very much belongs in a conversation about knighthood. And to think, people wonder why there's so much to say about these books. I mean, we could do entire episodes on just those few lines there. So obviously the groundwork for 
comparing Brienne to Sandor and Sandor to Jamie has been there already. We've talked about it a lot, especially in our Clash coverage. But we get to go a lot deeper with that theme in this book, in part because of that pre-existing groundwork and because we get inside Jamie's head and later we get in Brienne's head. Two, so two of the three characters there we get POVs for along the way. Not only do the three of them have this thematic connection, but they're following each other's paths in reverse. Sandor's just fled King's Landing while Brienne and Jamie are heading there. And where did Brienne and Jamie just leave? River Run, which is where Sandor is going to head once he snags Arya from the BWB. Full Xerxes appearance there. <laughs> <laughs> For a while there, uh, all three of them were in a Kingsguard sort of rainbow in R- Brienne's case. Uh, ironically, the one who can't fight anymore is the only one of the three still holding a Kingsguard job, right? <laughs> Brienne's no longer a rainbow guard. Sandor's no longer a Kingsguard. Jamie is still a Kingsguard, and he's the one without a hand. Does a sword make a knight? According to Sandor, yeah, pretty much. According to Brienne, no. According to Jamie, well, that's one of the beautiful things about his chapters. He starts off like Sandor, but gains perspective by seeing a shining example of the opposite view in Brienne. And by living without his hand, of course, and doing quite a bit without it, he proves to himself that there's more to knighthood than a sword. But it starts off, Jamie's starting off from so little in terms of his perspective. He's a very narrow-minded, cynical guy at the beginning. And this sim- the simplicity in his brand of cynicism is apparent here. He basically only respects fighting prowess, and he loves Cersei. He's got a narrow love life and a narrow life life. Brienne, so much of the opposite of Cersei in so many ways, which is part of what Jamie finds appealing. But he's also flat out impressed by her, which is a really big deal because it's hard to impress Jamie because he only cares about one thing. Fighting prowess, right? Again. And so this is strange to him. Woman, who he's never cared, he's only ever cared about Cersei, but he's finding himself interested in this one. And the reason is, in part, because she's brave and skilled, which is the only thing he respects. He hasn't seen her fight yet, but he notices her sailing and swimming skills and that move with the rock. Well, that was clever and it required strength. Perhaps more importantly, he notices her eyes. Jamie watched her eyes, pretty eyes, he thought, and calm. He knew how to read a man's eyes. He knew what fear looked like. She is determined, not desperate. You can't fake that. And why would she? She doesn't know Jamie's looking at her eyes. Jamie's extreme confidence in himself, too, would never allow him to doubt his read. He thinks she's determined. He's going to go with that read. He's too confident to doubt himself. But there's also just a hint of regular old physical, physical attraction there. He pretty eyes, right? Just to help us readers catch on what's going on in his subconscious, just to make sure it isn't read as just respect only. He likes her and it surprises him. The veritable salt of irony and subtle parallels literally only stops when the chapter itself does. I swore an oath to bring you safe to King's Landing. And you actually mean to keep it? Jamie gave her his brightest smile. Now there's a wonder. That's mockery that's, well, it's barely mockery at all. It's just like weak sarcasm. It reminds me of Tyrion, who is generally funny, but occasionally makes a really lame joke, like a bad joke that's intentionally bad. I mean, Martin writes it that way on purpose because, and it's almost always when he's around his father. it's, It's the whole humor as a defense mechanism instead of showing real emotion. And gosh, why would Tyrion, Jamie, and Cersei all have that in common? <laughs> no, I have no idea. Mm, Tywin. So, and, and the reason you tell this weak joke is because 
sometimes you're so overcome that your ability to be sarcastic, your defense mechanism fails because you're genuinely like, whoa, and you can't joke your way out of it. Jamie has legitimate respect for Brienne and it's just confusing him. It's confusing the hell out of him. It perhaps starts the first time she calls him monster and he declares that she has steel on his spine for saying that. So he's partly flattering himself as well by suggesting only a brave person would say that to me. He's probably right, though, because it's true that people would not likely say things to Jamie's face, especially given Tywin. I mean, you, Tywin wouldn't brook insults against his house, especially if it's about Jamie. I mean, Jamie would also not brook insults, but everyone knows not to talk about House Lannister because of Tywin, Reigns of Castamere, and all that. I'd say his Jamie's cynicism probably truly took hold when he realized that Ares had named him to his Kingsguard because he wanted to get revenge on Tywin. I think a lot of people would agree with that. As rereaders, we know that Jamie was not always so jaded, though. He idolized Sir Arthur Dane and wanted to be like him in all ways, not just as a warrior. Thanks to Ares and how even men like Arthur Dane accepted the Mad King, put up with his worst without lifting a finger or saying a word, Jamie realized that he was wrong to care about honor. He's like, well, the, I thought I was supposed to care about honor. I was raised to care about honor. But here I go, and no one seems to care about honor anymore. I, I, it was all a lie. But the martial prowess part, caring about killing and being good with the sword, that part turned out to be true. That part did turn out to matter. And that's part of why he's cynical about everything else, because that's the one thing that from his childhood that he learned that seemed to matter other than his love for Cersei. And here comes Brienne challenging all those notions. The idea that someone's oath is meaningful was once something he held in regard. And here comes Brienne. Very early in this chapter, he thinks of the oath Catelyn made him swear. Swear that you will never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honor his pledge to return my daughters safe and unharmed. Swear on your honor as a knight, on your honor as a Lannister, on your honor as a sworn brother of the Kingsguard. Swear it by your sister's life and your father's and your son's, by the old gods and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse, and I will have your blood. He immediately thinks of how that vow is worth very little. Not only has he already talked about his problems of conflicting oaths, now he's not exactly a trustworthy person either, and he knows that. But also he thinks how he was forced, and that oaths at sword point are not valid. With that in mind, it's pretty amazing to see that he actually means to keep it. Now there's a wonder. <laughs> Seems to me, though, and I'm, no, I'm not alone, that Brienne is the one who inspired him to be the change you want to see in the world, so to speak. The one who helped him realize that, hey, there are knights whose name no one knows that are doing more to make honor count for something in this world. And you're Jamie freaking Lannister. Any example you set will have huge ripples across society because you are a popular, well-regarded, well-known guy. Right here in this very chapter, we see from inside his head that he's sincerely not afraid of death by violence. So how else could that great courage be of use to the realm? Surely not just by fighting when fighting breaks out. Surely there's more to life than killing your family's enemies. Let's not forget that Jamie Lannister is the kind of man that men love to follow. So they're not following callous cynicism then? Or rather, they are following callous cynicism then. That's the ripple Jamie Lannister is sending out into the world. The greatest knight in the realm sets an example unworthy of that designation. And he's starting to realize that. As he's sailing down the river, the transformation begins. The closer he gets to Cersei, the less he resembles her. 
down in the dungeons, his beard grew out. And it was noted at the time how that beard was setting him apart from his twin in terms of appearance. But now in this chapter, the symbolic transformation goes further. He shaves his head, a major distinction he and Cersei share, a major part of his Lannister identity. And he thinks she'll be upset about that. This should make us think about the inclusion of lice in this scene. That golden mane that links him to his sister and his former identity is infested with vermin. And it's got to go. It's got to go. Then he grooms the beard. Grooming the beard is driving that wedge in a little more. It's, uh, he's paying more attention to this part of him that's separating him from Cersei. And it's just so mundane and sensibly done. It's really clever by George. Of course you shave your head to look less like the famous person you are. That's just, a, that's just good sense. But Jamie's the one who has the idea. That's important. If Brienne or Catelyn had thought shaving his head, they would probably have made him do it. They're like, oh yeah, that'll help him not be recognized. But Jamie has to be the one to make that choice. From a literary perspective, he has to make that choice to be less like Cersei. But he has to be wary of, like both of his siblings do, becoming too much like their father. The reflection in the water was a man he did not know. Not only was he bald, but he looked as though he had aged five years in that dungeon. His face was thinner, with hollows under his eyes and lines he did not remember. I don't look as much like Cersei this way. She'll hate that. If you buy into the symbolism behind Jamie shaving his lion's mane and grooming his beard, we would be remiss to ignore that Tywin shaves his head and grooms his facial hair. <laughs> Jamie, don't go, don't be too much like your father. You're going to need your own identity there. Mm, how about a golden hand? Golden hand the just, perhaps. That's nothing like Tywin. He can be a Lannister without being like his father, right? That's, that's kind of the point. Sir Cleos doesn't behave like Lord Walder and is polite to Brienne, even admonishing for him his, for his manner. That's not what Walder Frey would do. Jamie thinks very little of Sir Cleos, but I don't think Sir Cleos is too bad. And Jamie's later going to miss him and speak well of him after his death. Sir Cleos is making his third trip across the Riverlands. Circumstances were not terribly kind to him here, but he shares his experiences in conversation. He remarks that Lord Beric is likely not the, uh, the one who... Uh, killed the women for laying with lions. He suggests it might have been Mark Piper or Roose Bolton's men. And to me, the latter seems likely. That's exactly the kind of justice the people at Harrenhal got. They were forced into servitude, but Roose Bolton had them killed anyway for the crime of dealing with the enemy. That's this is very familiar. It just blows me away that Sir Brienne appears in this chapter, this first Jamie chapter. And you know, y'all know from going through Valerie Reedus, that these number one chapters, a character's first chapter, has so much to say about their long-term arc. And here we are seeing all this stuff about him separating from Cersei, about him becoming interested in Brienne, about him being attracted to her, about him, you know, calling her Sir Brienne. There's so much here. It's amazing. So yeah, Joe's, Joe's thoughts. More great takes. He notices that this is the first new POV we've received who played a major role in Robert's Rebellion. Theon was barely born, and Davos did save Storm's End, but other than that, he wasn't really involved in the war. And frankly, Davos doesn't really even spend a lot of time thinking about that. He thinks about just a few aspects of it, but there's not a lot of detail. I don't think this could have worked if we received Jamie's stuff in Clash, given how much focus Robert's Rebellion had in, in game via Ned's POV. We lost a large part of that in Clash, so now it's fresh again, and it's a much better read. Not only have we gained a major character in the story, but a major character who can show us Westerosi history. That's really important. Of course, we love the Westerosi history aspect. Really doubling down on the idea that Jamie isn't ready for redemption is his complete cast off his pushing of Bran out a window. 
this is a really incredibly important event, one that <laughs> throws Bran into the mystical otherworld of unnatural powers and the rest of the world into a civil war that tears thousands of lives apart and ends up being revealed as having come about because Jamie was basically just horny. He just was like, I haven't been with my sister in a while and I just can't wait anymore. It's just, it, it's, it's almost fitting that so much of this started because of just pettiness, selfishness, just, yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I think George is sending us an instant message by Jamie being in the middle of the Riverlands in the book's first chapter. There aren't any battles around the corner or really even armies moving around at the moment, but already we are given a shot of the aftermath and the devastation left over from war. Now, Jamie doesn't feel any guilt or even connection to this, even though that it's his family and somewhat himself responsible for this. Jamie commands an army in the Riverlands. Tywin, of course, had more to do with the burning of the place, but Jamie knows that his father does, did that and does that sort of thing. Some uh, thoughts from you guys. Noga Frankel says he swears on the life of three people. Two of them are already dead by the end of this book. Yeah, good point. John Hagee says this reminds me of Aslan losing his mane in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, very cool. Very cool. That's a great take. We've got a related take coming up in a minute here. But first of all, I want to ask you guys this. Another related question to the questions about Sam and other stuff. Did you recall Jamie's transformation beginning when he lost his hands? Or did you notice that it was already starting to happen in this first chapter with uh, Brienne, when he's interacting with Brienne? He's not going to lose his hand until the end of chapter three. But I put up a Twitter poll asking which impacted him more, losing his hand or meeting Brienne. And it generated a great discussion. The point wasn't really truly to gauge which was more important by poll. I was curious, but they're both huge factors and it's not really important to say which one is bigger than the other. I think the fandom has a point is though, I think the fandom has a tendency to look at the loss of his hand as a reason for why he starts to accept Brienne. Not just, it's, it's, the hand is the catalyst for everything is the attitude a lot of people have. When I think, I think that's wrong. I think it's clearly wrong. I think this chapter shows that the transformation was already underway the losing of his hand just like kicked it into a higher gear. It doesn't mean Brienne had more of an impact than losing his hand, but it does show her impact was independent of the loss of his hand and powerful. If he never loses his hand, her impact on him would still probably be pretty important. The fandom also has a tendency to, that, to, to note that not everyone thinks of Jamie as transformed. Other people, there's a lot of people out there that simply just don't forgive him for Bran. It's just too much for, to forgive throwing a child out a window. I get that. And for the record, the poll went 54.2 to 45.8, which is a little closer than I thought. So a lot of y'all, and that was almost, there was over 2,000 respondents. So it was a pretty good data sample there. So 45.8% said Brienne's was more important to Jamie's transformation than losing his hand. And 542 said the hand was more important. I'm not going to even weigh in on which was more important. They're both so darn important, it's immeasurable. But I, I think just floating it out like there, out like that, generated some great discussion. So I'm very glad I did that. I'm very glad for the responses. Noga Frankel also says, even Cersei of all people recognizes that pushing Bran out the window was wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good point. It just shows that his moral compass really, really needs some work or needed some work uh, <laughs> if he's doing stuff that even Cersei recognizes is wrong. Also interesting... Uh, this is something that I never thought about. A great catch by Noga. The shaving of his hair is a bit of a parallel inadvertently to the Dothraki who shaved, they cut their braids off when they're, uh, when they're defeated. And Jamie was uh, definitely defeated. 
So, I mean, he's just getting out of prison here. Nina points to Dunk and the Septon, uh, the, the, the hanged Septon that Dunks was like, shouldn't have hanged the Septon just for talking, as a possible parallel to Brienne very much wanting to bury the hanged women and having a little bit of sympathy for them. That's a good catch. It's a little, it's, it's pretty subtle. It's not super straightforward, but yeah, I agree that's a little bit of something there. Whitney Cayley Stanfield from Facebook says, I also love Beauty and the Beast references sprinkled in their story, which is, uh, that's what I was talking about when I mentioned the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Jamie is often referred to as a beast slash lion, and Brienne is mockingly called Beauty. She ends up seeing the man through the beast, and Jamie ends up seeing her true beauty. Sansa and the Hound have a similar Beauty and the Beast theme between them as well. Yes, and of course, if y'all missed it, George R. R. Martin wrote for the TV show Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> which featured Ron Perlman, Linda Hamilton, and Roy Dotrice in that show. Those were the three main stars. How cool is that? Girl Nettles uh, has a different take here. She thinks that Cersei was only mad that Bran survived, not that Jamie pushed Bran. I, I guess that is open to interpretation. It's not entirely clear that Cersei thinks it was wrong to shove Bran. She just thinks they could have handled it differently. She certainly says we could have talked to him and scared him. So she definitely has, but some of that might be hindsight is 2020. You know, I'm not Cersei. I don't know if we can count on Cersei to, to act as if things hadn't changed. It's an open question. We'll call it that. Archmaster Rennie points out that Jamie thinks of, finally of Tyrion and how they'll laugh at how Jamie slept through his own escape. And that is a very poignant little moment because it, it, that is something else that matters to to Jamie. As much as he focuses on swordsmanship and Cersei, he definitely loves his brother a lot. And that's going to be very tragic later. And it's also just because, well, very few people love Tyrion. And the fact that he does have one person out there that really does think of him as an equal, as a family member, as, as just in positive terms is very important. And so that's going to be a really big deal for Tyrion to lose that later. It's going to be a pretty big deal for Jamie to lose that too, but it'll probably impact Tyrion more. Silver Shade says Jamie pretty much lives in a constant state of cognitive dissonance. It is kind of the way he could survive Tywin, Ares, and Cersei. We are only seeing the beginnings of him finally coming out of it. Yeah, that cognitive dissonance that, uh, that people like Sansa and Brienne have dealt with when they came of age and realized that knighthood and the stories weren't what they thought. Jamie has his own version of that, thinking that he was going to be an honorable knight, going to be like Sir Arthur Dane. But instead, as he himself puts it, he's more like the Smiling Knight. Stephanie the Peerless catches some irony. Jamie complains about conflicting oaths. And then Catelyn makes him swear another oath and makes him swear on like 12 different things. <laughs> swear on this, swear on that. Swear on this. He's like, uh, were you listening, Catelyn? <laughs> but of course, this is just a joke because Catelyn wasn't ever counting on Jamie. As we know, she was counting more on Tyrion, keeping his word. Whether that's the right call or not is another thing entirely. We're at the end of Jamie 1, so that means we're going to the next chapter, which is Catelyn 1. The one with Tansy, a.k.a. the gang's pissed at Catelyn. That complicates things, though, doesn't it? Uh, being pissed at Catelyn um, because the gang doesn't, isn't comfortable being pissed at Catelyn. They, a lot of these people at River Run have known her since she's a little girl, and they still kind of think of her in that way in a lot of ways. And that's a big part of this chapter, which begins with this line. Sir Desmond Grell had served House Tully all his life 
It's a very underwhelming first line, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> it's not quite as big as uh, Cersei's fragrant fingers. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> there are some aspects to chivalry that are excellent and worthy, such as a willingness to protect innocence from physical harm. That's pretty straightforward. But sometimes this line of thinking leads to the belief that those that, that people that you're protecting are lesser than you. The news must have driven you mad, Sir Desmond broke in. A madness of grief, a mother's madness. Men will understand. You did not know. I did, Catelyn said firmly. I understood what I was doing and knew it was treasonous. If you fail to punish me, men will believe that we connived together to free Jamie Lannister. It was mine own act and mine alone, and I alone must answer for it. Put me in the Kingslayer's empty irons, and I will wear them proudly, if that is how it must be. In other words, do not give me a lesser punishment than a man would receive. Let's, let's parse this out because it's, uh, there's class involved as well. And as I said, a lot of these older guys knew her when she was a little girl and they still kind of think of her that way. But that's part of the problem. There's a little, you know, there's some, of the sh- some chauvinism built in here. There's a general built-in deference to nobility in, the, in Westeros as well. And that, so that first line looms really large. As unexciting as, as Ashea pointed out... <laughs> It is, it is important to note that Sir Desmond had served House Tully his whole life. If you lived in some rich person's house and were faced with having to put them in handcuffs, well, if they were bad rich people, if they treated you badly, it might be very satisfying to put them in cuffs. It might be cosmic justice of sorts. But if they were good to you, let's say they treated you well, very well, for several decades, that's basically Sir Desmond here. He's like, I got to put the daughter of the guy who's given me this great job and, and helped take care of me, honored me for decades. Like, that makes him very uncomfortable. So it's not all chauvinism, but it is, there is a very strong chauvinism streak here. Uh, there's no equivalent to the term he uses here, a mother's madness. I mean, there is a father's madness. Rickard Karstark, hello. <laughs> but no one ever calls it that. Sir Desmond would never say such a thing to Edmure. No one, Sir Desmond would never say, to Catelyn's brother, Edmure's had a father's madness, but he would feel horrified at the idea of putting Edmure in manacles. Maybe not as much as he feels horror at putting Catelyn in manacles, but it would be like, ooh, I don't want to do that. This is going to come back up again in the next chapter. Great John, who we like for the most part, is going to fall into the same thing. He's going to dismiss it. As, he's going to say, it's a mother's folly. Women are made that way. While Rickard Karstark... Arg angrily disagrees and calls it treason. The guy with father's madness. <laughs> it doesn't, he doesn't call it mother's madness. The one with father's madness. He's so, a feminist. <laughs> yeah, Car Stark's a hidden feminist. You, we just didn't know it. We didn't know it. We see a piece of George R. R. Martin's thinking here with regard to how he ordered these chapters, right? In this chapter, we see Kat informed that they're chasing Jamie and they're sure to catch him. But we just read Jamie one and we know they don't. So. That's really important. It's a good layout by George because what he's done is he's alleviated the reader of that early unknown. So you're not distracted by, oh, are they going to catch Jamie? Are they going to catch him? Because if you're thinking about that, you're not going to catch all these very subtle details. This, this chapter is challenging. It's got a lot of misinformation in it. It's, it's hard to, to figure out everything that's happening because Catelyn herself is confused and she gets a lot of things wrong. And it's, some of the things she gets wrong are after she thinks about them for a while. So as readers, we're kind of used to saying this, this character puzzles through something and they figure it out. And we're like, you kind of assume that they have figured it out. But no, Catelyn finishes this chapter not understanding 
several of things that she's just tried to understand, even though it feels like she did. So, but by relieving the reader of the unknowns in Brienne's quest, you can focus on these things. So, but of course, backing that off a little bit, it's only temporary relief about Jamie and Brienne because as soon as he alleviates that, then he lets you dive into this Hoster Tully Lysa mystery, only to at the end of the chapter bring that tension right back by showing that Edmure has gone farther than Sir Desmond by increasing the pursuit. And we have not seen Jamie and Brienne face those particular challenges launched by Sir Edmure yet. So it's only a temporary alleviation of that anxiety just so we can focus on Hoster and Hoster's guilt. And well, yeah, that's a big thing that comes up on reread. When you're no longer dealing with all the cat's confusion and all this misinformation, when you have a better sense of what's happening, when you already know going into this chapter that Hoster's guilt is tied to tricking Lysa into an abortion, when you know to look for that, it's very blatant. When you don't, there's lots of possibilities and it may not be so easy to figure out which of the many possibilities or which permutation of these different alignments works. Was it Lysa upset? Uh, that she lost her pregnancy with John Aaron. That's what Kat settles on. But we know that's not true. But look how actual blatant it is. It comes out just like this, quote. It is a monstrous, cruel thing to lose a child, she whispered softly, more to herself than to her father. So she doesn't even know Hoster's awake, yet he responds and says, Lord Hoster's eyes open. Tansy, he husked in a voice thick with pain. And the minute he hears the phrase, it's a monstrous, cruel thing to lose a child, he just wakes up and says, Tansy. Catelyn's confused, and it makes sense for her to be. But again, piecing it all together, it's pretty darn clear. His hand groped for hers. He'll have others, sweet babes and trueborn. It really makes so much of Lysa's behavior a lot more understandable. Not the worst part. She surely doesn't get a pass for everything. But the distance and the sadness over losing her first trueborn child, her anxiety over Robert Aaron, her dislike of their father especially her unwillingness to forgive him, that makes sense. And so does Blackfish's support of her. If he knew about the tansy, which he probably did, I mean, so many, this is such a guilty thing. He, he knew about Littlefinger with her, which, which, which Catelyn did not. So Blackfish probably knew about a lot of this. Or Lysa wanted to get away from her father. Maybe Hoster or maybe Blackfish also wanted to get away from him after all that. He just was disgusted and wanted to help protect Lysa while getting away from his brother. Nina did some good research here. It seems that eight times, eight, that Lysa was pregnant in a 15-year span. And out of that, only little Robert Aaron, the sickly boy, made it. This is such a hateful thing. Not losing all these kids. I mean, that is terrible, but that's not hateful. What I mean is that it's, I'm obviously not going to get into a debate over abortion, but I can amazingly make a point here without doing so. What we have here is a pregnancy terminated without the woman's decision. So it's remarkable that we have a scenario with an outcome that no one in the, that represents the major, most loud voices in the abortion debate would like. They, somehow, Hoster Tully has done something that neither side would be cool with. They would hate it. That's really unusual. It's also really remarkable and nearly impossible to catch on a first read how what, that, that Hoster, what he does to Lysa is almost the exact same thing Sybil Spicer does to Jane Westerling. To be clear, Jane's mother Sybil gives her a tea designed to prevent pregnancy, but tells her it will do the opposite. Whew. That's, of course, Rob's about to be wife, or I guess at this point, they're already married. 
And this is the same chapter where Catelyn finds out that Rob was wounded taking the castle where Jane Westerling lives, but she hasn't learned the whole truth yet. Which, of course, leads to that relationship, you know, Rob and, and Jane. By this time, like I said, not only are they married, they've consummated their marriage. They've, Catelyn is receiving news here that the phrase have already received at Harrenhal, right? Arya already knows that Rob has broken his promise. But Cat doesn't. She's not going to learn until the next chapter. It's a little ominous. Another disturbing realization from Hoster's guilty ramblings is that the loss of the first child was very difficult physically. That's part of a lot of Lysa's anger and hate for her father is all that talk of lots of blood. Hoster has seen battlefield and other bursts, so we know that this lots of blood isn't, uh, isn't you know, him exaggerating. It was exceptional, most likely. So there's a chance that her reproductive system may have suffered permanent damage. And whether that's true or not, she's not unlikely to think it and blame her father for it. This in itself makes the chapter even more remarkable. Think about it. Cat's pain is powerful, but there's nothing terribly new to it the second time through. You, you, it's, uh, most of it's laid out pretty clearly. You know, Ned's death, she's terrified over her, her kids, and now she's anxious about Brienne's mission. But Lysa's pain is new the second time through. Somehow this chapter is written in a way that the first time you get Cat's conflict in a shadow of Lysa's, because Cat isn't sure, so neither is the reader. But the second time through, we know more than Catelyn does, and Lysa's perspective is revealed, and it's very tragic. So it's almost like Cat's chapter the first time and Lysa's chapter the second time. Uh, the first time through, I recall being led entirely by Cat. When she thinks that Lysa could at least send a letter to ease their father's passing, I'm like, yeah, I was with Cat. I'm like, come on, Lysa, yeah, just send a letter. That's easy enough. Just send a letter to your dying father. Like, it's really easy to get caught up in that and think that Lysa's being the bad person here if you miss all this subtext. Heck, she's not even writing. She's dictating a letter. It's not even an effort, really. But now, now I say, after all these rereads, I'm like, if she, if, she wanted to, if she wants to forgive her father, that's her choice. If she doesn't want to or can't, that's her choice too. So George R. R. Martin cleverly uses Kat's house arrest to keep all the news from reaching her or from reaching her in a timely manner. Take your pick. It's a little bit like Ariane Martell locked in the tower. And hey, her father is also suffering from severe health issues. But the similarities mostly end there. Catelyn is suffering deeply for a variety of reasons that are hard for most readers to fathom. They're clearly powerful, but most of us have not dealt with the things she's dealt with. And the emotional scarring is as real and permanent as those on her hands. Ariane's future remains largely undamaged after what she does. After her imprisonment, she's not sitting there lamenting the loss of her family. She's just worried about her own future and her loss of, of what she believes is hers, which isn't even all that accurate. And her, she doesn't carry any scars. It's mostly other people getting scarred for her actions. So, eh. But Jamie realizes that Kat isn't really trusting him as much as he is trusting Tyrion. That's a really important point. And Kat reveals that at the, in this chapter just as much as Jamie reveals that in his. It's a little bit of a parallel there. But it gets worse because Edmure comes at the end of the chapter and tells Catelyn that he's effectively undermined that move and in the worst possible way. By putting out word that Jamie escaped, there's no reason for Tyrion to release her daughters. In fact, he has a negative reason to do that. People will be like, why did the imp release these daughters because Jamie escaped from prison? What sense does that make? But Edmure says it doesn't matter. He says Tyrion's probably dead. He wouldn't have let, let them go anyway. We know Tyrion's not dead, but that doesn't matter because Tywin is in charge of King's Landing. So Edmure is right. 
that Tyrion doesn't, that Tyrion's not going to release Arya and Sansa. He's right for the wrong reasons, but he is effectively right because Tywin, for damn sure, would not let Sansa or Arya go. He doesn't have Arya, but he wouldn't let her go either. Whether or not Edmure did the right thing is debatable, it, but it's certain that Cat didn't operate with full information. If Cat knew it would be Tywin's choice and not Tyrion's, does she still free Jamie? Probably not. Probably not. She probably doesn't count on Tywin's honor. Edmure points out that he's informed Roose Bolton at Harrenhal about Jamie's escape. Though Cat quickly explains how Edmure may have actually made things worse, she doesn't realize that it is probably even worse than that. What do I mean? Well, we already know by now, Roose knows Arya escaped. She was his cupbearer. He would know she and her missing friends escaped together and killed that guard. It's a pretty straightforward thing to piece together. He would likely send men after her, but I doubt he's going to scour the countryside. She's just not that important. But he will look hard for Jamie. And if they're out there looking for Jamie, well, they might find Arya. Just the fact that there's more search parties going out, they're not going to ignore Arya if they find her. They're going to be like, oh, hey, you're that cupbearer who got away. But hey, no worries. As we'll see in the next chapter, Nymeria's got her back. But back to this chapter, it underscores the need for a reread in a way that becomes very familiar in Cersei chapters, which is that the reader has to sift through a lot of imperfect information by the POV character. In Cersei's case, there's a lot of reason to think she's being lied to by several different people. Catelyn isn't, being, isn't dealing with being lied to. She's just dealing with large gaps in her knowledge with regards to what's happening in her family and in the war. She's in the dark about so much regarding her sister's relationship with their father on top, on top of all the war stuff. And about her son's status. She doesn't know that, i.e., she doesn't know that Rob is married. She doesn't know where Arya is. The maester almost certainly knows about Rob's marriage, right? The maester was like, I can't tell you, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. But he knew and didn't tell her. He just probably didn't want to get involved in all that. After all, Arya herself already knows, like I said. Interestingly, though, something I missed that Joe Buckley points out. The maester probably did know about the tansy. He, he may have been playing dumb because the maester, Maester Vyman, apparently has been there a while. A good chance he was the one that was there for the, the abortion tea, the, the tansy tea. And so he may have known and was just kind of playing dumb. That's a good catch. I didn't think about that. The maester may have just been like, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't tansy, tansy. I don't know. Because it is a little hard to believe that the maester doesn't know what tansy is. That's that's a very strong point there. Like, I really, honing in on that point is like, yeah, really? An old maester doesn't know what Tansy is? Really? Yeah, that's very hard to believe when you put it that way. As far as getting back to Kat's dis, dis, the disinformation that Kat's dealing with, Kat thinks Lysa is sad that she lost her first child with John Aaron. And well, well, she is sad about that, but that's not the big one. The Tansy part is the big one. And Kat, as I said at the beginning, she spends a good bit of this chapter puzzling through it, but she gets the wrong, and she, she arrives at the wrong conclusion at the end. She does not figure out that Hoster did what he did to Lysa. She doesn't even, another thing she doesn't even know about is the Battle of the Blackwater. Until the end of the chapter, Lysa come, or Edmure comes in and tells her that Stannis lost the battle. And she has mixed feelings about that because she's been having nightmares about the Shadow Baby, which... Add that to everything. I mean, she's having nightmares about her kids and all this other anxiety. I, I just throw that on the pile. It's really just so much for her to deal with. It's crazy. Which is a good segue to uh, one of Joe's comments here. He says, beginning a reread, even back at the beginning of Game of Thrones, we obviously know where we're going to end up, but there's really no such ending with as much emotional resonance as the final Catelyn Stark chapter in A Storm of Swords. 
Seeing Catelyn's name as a chapter title in this book for the first time merely reminds us of what is going to happen before long. There's a whole bunch between now and then, though not much of it can be counted as positive in Catelyn's viewpoint. But even so, beginning this chapter is a reminder that it's the most tragic one-book arc in all of The Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, that I'll definitely agree with, that Catelyn's Storm of Swords arc is probably the saddest of any single book arc. Really hard to measure up to that. Who would want to? Catelyn outright says she has no option but to sit, wait, and hope, which is very different from her beginning of Clash, where she was out the door and being proactive almost straight away, and early in game, she was out the door as well. Also, Joe takes note that, that Lysa did seem legitimately happy to marry John Aaron. She didn't actually seem to be bothered by his age. She was really happy that they were both pregnant at the same time. And when she lost that first child, that blew that all up. So We've got a quote here. Afterward, when their moon blood did not come at the accustomed time, Lysa had gushed happily of the sons she was certain they carried. Yeah, so it's pretty strong evidence that if maybe she wasn't super happy about marrying a guy so much older, but she was happy to really happy to be getting married at the same time as her sister and to be pregnant at the same time as her sister. That made her very happy. And there's no actual evidence that she was upset with marrying John. I don't remember it ever coming up that she didn't like John Aaron or that she was disappointed to be marrying such an older guy. I mean, it's not unlikely, but she didn't seem to be like really bothered by it. Uh, but Catelyn seizes on that as a possibility because it makes sense. Yeah, I think she would be most bothered not by marrying this old man or the Lord Paramount of of the Vale, but not being able to be with Peter. Yeah, that too. Good point. Mm. So there's a lot going on there that we have to piece through because Catelyn fails to. And it's not her fault. She just doesn't have the information. And frankly... It's hard for her to accept some of these things. It's hard to take your mind there about your own family. Uh, For example, a good take here by several people contributed to these discussions. Tree Girl says she can't just contemplate that without shattering a very comfortable old illusion. Well said. And blind spots with, uh, with regards to one's own family is a common thing in The Song of Ice and Fire and in the real world. It's authentic for that to be in place here. I mean, heck, Tywin doesn't know about his own Jamie and Cersei being together? Is that really because he didn't notice or because he's just trying not to notice? Is that willful? I think some of it's willful. Uh, and these, these, these blind spots about her family also apply to Littlefinger. That's really important. She grew up with him and thinks of him like a brother. A bit willfully, of course, given how he feels. So it's a triple blind spot to miss that Littlefinger got Lysa pregnant and Hoster made the choice to end it. But this is simply an error in perception. Even if Kat figures all this out, it's so far in the past. What's she going to do? Like, she can't have any impact on it. Maybe she could give her sister more comfort and understanding. She would have written that letter differently. But damage was done when they were girls. It's long in the past. So, and now, of course, Kat's never going to understand. And neither will Lysa. They're both gone. Uh, other comments from y'all. Justin DL97 says, it's odd that the word tansy sticks in his memory. I can't imagine he brewed the tea himself. Yeah, again, more evidence that the maester knew. <laughs> Jaded Redhead quotes the line, Father, I know what you did. You made him take her. Lysa was the price John Aaron had to pay for the swords and spears of House Tully. But wrong. That's not entirely true. I mean, it is sort of true. Lysa was the price, but Lysa didn't mind it as, mu- as much as Catelyn thinks she did, apparently. Connie Super points out that Cat was the price Ned had to pay for an army. Yeah, it's true. They both, they had to, that part, that was the other part of this. The, the Hoster's double marriage, he wanted to 
break free of the long-standing Targaryen loyalty. This is important. We get into this in our Blackfish episode. When Hoster was about five or six years old, this is when Aegon V's kids refused their marriages. Duncan the Small, the Prince of Dragonflies, the Prince of Summerhall, the one who married Jenny of Oldstones, he was set to marry Celia Tully, who very well may have been Hoster's sister. If not his sister, it would have been like his aunt or something. And the, Tar- the Tullys had been hyper-loyal to the Targaryens prior to that. And this is probably why they were getting a Tully bride marrying the heir to the throne. Let's not forget how big a deal that is. The Tullys were set to be part of the royal family. That was going to be Queen Tully. Queen Celia Tully married to Ping Duncan Targaryen. That's a huge thing they lost out on. So the fact that Hoster grew up as a young child amidst that broken marriage promise is not unlikely why he was more willing to turn against the Targaryens than perhaps his forebears, because they uh, were not insulted by this broken marriage promise like he was, the family of his generation was. So that's a little history for you there that, that adds to this whole thing. It's sad. It's too bad that Roy Dotrice pronounces Brienne Brienne, but he does a great job in this chapter. For example, his comedic timing on Maester Vyman's maybe fake confusion when he says, oh, maybe it was Tansy or Pansy. And she's like, her name was Violet. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Girl Nettle says, she meant that Lysa was not a virgin and therefore not fit for John Aaron. That's why Lysa was the price John Aaron had to pay. Ah, I see. Yes, I did see. I misunderstood the comment. Good correction there. Yeah, that John Aaron, if he wants to have the Swords of House Tully on his side in the rebellion, he's going to have to take this quote-unquote soiled bride, which, of course, you know, in modern times, the idea of a soiled bride is bizarre uh, in the West, especially, like, soiled? What does that mean? <laughs> like, what? This is a very old-school piece of controlling women's sexuality that's in play here. Whitney K. Stanfield says, I think Lysa's loveless marriage and lost children, whatever the true count may be, led to her own form of, quote, a mother's madness. Then seeing Catelyn happy in her marriage with five healthy children and knowing that Littlefinger had also loved Cat more fueled a deep jealousy in Lysa, leading to her despising her sister. And later, she transfers this onto Sansa. Yeah, good example. Now, if we're going to use the phrase mother's madness, this is, Lysa has it, if anyone does. Could not Catelyn. (laughs) Catelyn is controlling herself. She, Catelyn has massive anxiety and stress, and she is managing it. Lysa, fair to say she cracked under it. But it's also fair to say the stress was unbearable. It was so much. It was something that most of us could never possibly fathom or contemplate or empathize with other than to say, oh, that must be really bad. But it is fair to say she is not all there anymore. She, it broke her. She broke under that pressure and has never been kind of right afterwards. Stefan B. says, Cat finds herself in the position she found Jamie in, which is confined and desperate for news. Good point. Good catch there. All right. I think that's it for uh, Catelyn uh, one here. It's a long, uh, sad journey we'll be on with her, but there's a lot of interest, a lot of great writing, and a lot of fun detail that we didn't notice. It's not all tragedy. It's not all tragedy. And we also get to do something fun with the books that we don't get from the show, which is Catelyn's not done. Well, Catelyn kind of is, but Lady Stoneheart isn't. Her arc in the show just ends when it ends, and that's it. But her book arc, in terms of what happens with Lady Stoneheart, 
Now, maybe we're just going to get to the end of that and be like, damn, that was just even more sad. It was just even more tragic. But we don't know. And we have a lot of unknowns. And a lot of it revolves around Jamie and Brienne. So I'm really looking forward to that. But we'll have to wait. Right now, Arya won. The gang runs away, a.k.a. the wolf pack burst the bloody mummers. It starts with the following line. The sky was as black as the walls of Harrenhal behind them and the rain fell soft and steady, muffling the sound of their horses' hooves and running down their faces. Though this isn't her first time on the run with Gendry and Hot Pie, oh, Arya's noble upbringing and education are more prominent this time around. The boys have little to no experience riding horses, and the chafing is real. Hot Pie complains, Gendry doesn't, but Arya is observant, and it's obvious enough to her that it's bothering him as well. Hey, it's not as bad as what Danny went through, though, right? <laughs> Arya is also able to read a map, it nearly astonishes Hot Pie that she could read the words on it. You can read writing? When they've ridden so far, they're literally collapsing from exhaustion. Hot Pie busts out some night cheese and falls asleep, falls asleep mid-bite. Goals, really, to be honest. I want to fall asleep mid-cheese bite. <laughs> so does Charlie Kelly. <laughs> yeah. I just don't know. I just can't rely. I just can't be that relaxed. <laughs> of course, in Hot Pie's case, he's just that exhausted. Then we get Arya's first serious wolf dream. She's had snippets before, as we covered in A Clash of Kings, but this is clearly a more vivid and serious one. This, the dream seems to be prefaced by the appearance of wolves during their journey several times. There were, there's some pretty strong and clear symbolism in uh, Roos hunting wolves at the end of A Clash of Kings, but we see pretty clearly that his efforts did little. Maybe there's some meaning in that, too. Skin a few wolves, Roos, but you can't get them all. One of them's going to get you. Or maybe your own son will. And maybe the wolves will get him. I don't know. <laughs> or the dogs. The chapter starts with her hearing the howling of wolves. Then she feels their presence. Like, feels their presence. Then they come upon wolves eating a fawn. And then again, after that, we get this. Once, from the crest of a ridge, she spied dark shapes crossing a stream in the valley behind them. And for half a heartbeat, she feared that Roose Bolton's riders were on them. But when she looked again, she realized they were only a pack of wolves. <laughs> a pack of wolves. <laughs> she cupped her hands around her mouth and howled down at them. Oh, oh. When the largest of the wolves li lifted its head and howled back, the sound made Arya shiver. Do you like my wolf? Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't know if it's, uh, if, if that's Nymeria, though, it's not, it's not good enough. <laughs> no, I don't think it's terribly haunting. <laughs> so that very well could be Nymeria. It might not be. But the point is, there's just wolves just constantly around them. And it's not necessarily because there's just wolves everywhere. It's strongly implied that the wolves are actually following. But clearly not with violence in mind. Well, not towards, not towards Arya and her little group. They definitely intend violence towards the Bloody Mummers, though. Back in the Game of Thrones, Tywin unleashed Vargo Hote, Gregor Clegane, and Armory Lorch on the Riverlands. By the time Arya catches ship at Saltpans at the end of the book, which is still in, Riverland, in the Riverlands, Hote will be dead, Tywin will be dead, Lorch is already dead, and Clegane will be in Kyburn's hands and on his way to becoming Sir Robert Strong while in unthinkable pain, i.e. probably wishing he was as dead as the others. Before most of that, though, Clegane will lose several men, in part thanks to Arya, and she'll see Hote lose several men to the Brotherhood Without Banners when she's with them, and several more right here in her wolf dream. One question I have is, were these mummers out hunting Arya or Jamie? We brought it up in the Catelyn chapter because we know that Edmure told Roose Bolton about Jamie's escape. 
And that would almost certainly be more important. But it could be both. You know, I think they're probably more focused on Jamie, like I said, but if, they're, if they see Arya, they'll catch her too. It's funny too, because Arya would be just as important, if not more important, if he actually knew who she was. But he missed that chance. It's perhaps more tempting to believe Nymeria was specifically protecting Arya. After all, we had heard about wolf attacks before, but nothing like this, nothing like the quote we're about to read. I mean, what we had seen before was wolves were keeping Roos Bolton up late at night and wolves were, you know, appearing in larger numbers. Some wolves had attacked horses in a ringed camp and that was considered bold. But this, this concerted effort to kill heavily armed men, something else is going on here. Her dreams were red and savage. The mummers were in them, four at least, a pale Lyseni and a dark, brutal axeman from Ib, the scarred Dothraki horse lord called Igo, and a Dornishman whose name she never knew. On and on they came, riding through the rain in rusting mail and wet leather, swords and axe clanking against their saddles. They thought they were hunting her, she knew, with all the strange, sharp certainty of dreams but they were wrong. She was hunting them. Hell yeah. That wasn't enough. Let's have a little more of that quote, shall we? She was no little girl in the dream. She was a wolf, huge and powerful. And when she emerged from beneath the trees in front of them and bared her teeth in a low, rumbling growl, she could smell the rank stench of fear from horse and man alike. The Lyseni's mount reared and screamed in terror, and the others shouted at one another in man-talk. But before they could act, the other wolves came hurtling from the darkness and the rain, a great pack of them, gaunt and wet and silent. I wonder what they said to each other in man-talk there. Probably, look how huge that one wolf is, or, oh my God, we're so screwed. <laughs> Something hard for like me that. to understand man-talk, too. <laughs> Shout out to our friends at nerdpins.net. Check them out. They make wonderful and cool A Song of Ice and Fire themed pins like this Aria pin I'm wearing right here. Appropriately enough for today's Aria chapter. Some thoughts from Joe Buckley. Their previous foray into the wilderness had the tense atmosphere of Amory Lorch possibly appearing at any point and this chapter immediately does the same thing with the possibility of Bolton men or worse, mummers appearing behind them except now they and their reader know exactly how horrible it's going to be if they're found. So we immediately buy into them getting away as quickly as possible. And yeah, with that in mind, it's super nice to see the wolves do their thing. It's like, do not come after our girl. Stay away from Arya. Personally, Joe really likes the inclusion of the details about Arya looking at the moss and using the moss as a, as a, uh, as a way to guide which direction they're going. And it's interesting to note that Gendry and Hot Pie grew up in, in, like big, in King's Landing, for example, and would not have learned such things or even knew people who knew how to do such things being given the station of their birth and all that. So it's a step to building, uh, to Arya's building frustration and loss of comfort after her decision in Clash to take control that leads to her decision to lead Westeros at the end. It's, it's kind of like, all, none of this is go, goes well for her. She wanders around. It, it's, you know, she ends up at the Red Wedding and it just, you kind of can see why she's just ready to get the heck out of there. There's a line, she says, get back on your horse to Hot Pie, which I just randomly thought of how that line appears in the, in the uh, TV version of the prologue of A Game of Thrones when uh, the two, when Garrett and Will are like, let's, let's not go. And he's like, get back on your horse. I won't say it again. Speaking of 
Arya being frustrated and being out in the wild and, and not knowing what's going to happen. Here's this little quote. She wondered how long it would be before she slept into bed again with hot food and a fire to warm her. I don't recall when that comes. I wonder, does she get uh, hot food and a fire before getting to the House of Black and White? I don't remember. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. Something for everybody to watch, watch out for. When do they next get hot food and a fire to warm them? I guess it's with the Brotherhood, but that's not a bed. So they only get the hot food and fire, but not the bed. Our good friend Warren Dudson says, I think Arya's strongest power is that her bond and skin changing is so natural. It's not something she does out of fear or need. She just kind of slips into Nymeria when she's exhausted and asleep. And in some of those other times, she slipped in just kind of by accident. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's, she's strong enough that this kind of happens without her intending it to happen. Whereas a lot of inborn powers, you really have to focus on them and develop them and make them happen, which is probably what happens with John. John needed, seemed to need a hand to get his powers going, whereas Bran and Arya, less so. Although Bran is getting hands, <laughs> they aren't, he probably would have been able to do a lot without them. Stephanie the Peerless says, this is her new pact, this group. And that's a really great take because, yeah, I mean, the pact survived. The lone wolf dies, the pact survives. She's, she understands that concept. But like, let's be honest here. She didn't go and get hot pie because she's like, well, we really need hot pie to help us survive. He's going to be a big help. She didn't get him because of his skills. She went and got hot pie to come with because she cares about him. She's kind of, he's kind of like an adopted brother of a sort. Like she, he's a traveling companion that they've, they've been through some bad things together. He may not, she, they may not be great friends and that they have a lot, of, a lot in common, but they've been through some of the worst things together and that, that builds a bond. And she's also just a good enough person that she doesn't want to leave him behind because she knows the reason she is leaving is because she expects bad things to happen at Hall, and she doesn't want those things to happen to Gendry and Hot Pie either. But it's a risk to her to take them. Well, maybe not Gendry, but Hot Pie, yeah. Stephanie also wonders if this is War of the Dawn foreshadowing, whether we'll see packs of wolves led by a green seer like, or a skin changer hunting down packs of the dead. We see that already in A Dance with Dragons. Cold Hands goes and cuts down those uh, Night's Watchmen, but we also see dead rangers rising that Summer eats, and we see the ranger, we see the fight outside Blood Raven's cave where Summer is attacking, like, you know, wiggling arms and things like that, just kind of taking them out. So definitely the direwolves seem more equipped than humans are in fighting the dead, at least in smaller numbers, in some ways. They're a, lot, they're a lot less likely to be afraid. I think the fear aspect doesn't get them as they don't necessarily comprehend what they're facing. And of course, with a human guiding them, that helps a lot. And yeah, I just think that there's a lot to go on here. I think that Arya is obviously, so much of her arc is training to be a faceless man, but Behind all that are her very, very potent skin changer powers, which she's definitely going to make use of. How? I don't know yet. I have some theories. Certainly, I've talked before about her using the cat under the, in, in the tunnels under King's Landing, the same tunnel she her overheard Varus and, and uh, Illyrio in, because that is how she went down there with a the cat. Anyway, there's lots of possibilities here. And there's, like I said, with the Bran thing, there's, uh, there's evidence for this being a bigger thing later. 
Tree Girl adds to this. She says, the wolf pack looms large in this chapter. It's so fascinating to me how George uses it in the background of so many chapters. It's always hovering around the edge of the story, coming forward at moments like this one. Uh, yeah, and it's not just a wolf, like the pack mentality of wolves only. It's just the pack, whether it's a literal wolf pack or Arya's pack of friends here. And Tree Girl also expects some warg queen style action from Arya later, maybe controlling multiple animals at once or at least just leading Nymeria's wolf pack through the Riverlands, whether it's getting revenge on human enemies or fighting the dead later. Well, why not both? Why not both? Ah, I think Will Moss may have nailed it. Arya gets to sleep in a bed when they go to Acorn Hall. Yeah, that's probably it. With the Brotherhood Without Banners, they go. She gets that dress, and the poor Lady Smallwood is thinking of her lost son, and Arya feels bad about that. So, yep, I bet that's it, because that was a noble woman's uh, castle there. So she almost, and, and she finds out who Arya is and gives her a dress. She probably doesn't give her a dress and not a bed. <laughs> Here, use your dress as a pillow. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, she wrestles in it. Fattis Leech comment says, from George R. R. Martin, Arya's wolf, Nymeria, in particular, will play an important role. You know, I don't like to give things away, says George R. R. Martin, but you don't hang a giant wolf pack on the wall unless you intend to use it. <laughs> well, <clears throat> HBO. <laughs> they hung a giant wolf pack on the wall. I didn't really intend to use it. I don't know if they hung it on the wall. They just kind of push it off to the side. <laughs> so also, um, Ashe reminds me that we should also mention uh, NerdPins' Instagram account. Yeah. Nerdpins is at Nerdpins on Instagram. Check them out there as well as on Facebook. Yeah, we got a cool Chaos is a Ladder pin, that Aria pin. Yeah. My favorite, which is A Song of Ice and Fire, as in the book that was in the show. Um, so I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, and th this to be clear, that's, this is not a paid sponsorship. They just sent us a few pins. We're, we're all buddies. We're saying thanks. <laughs> that's it. This so yeah, is check not them out. a paid sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it for today, folks. With only four chapters, it's not quite as long. We will be doing five chapters next week. And there's one or two instances where we'll be doing six chapters. But those six chapter incidences are when some of the chapters are short. For example, we do six chapters Red Wedding Week because a couple of those are very short and action-oriented. But that's a ways away. Next time, we have Tyrion 1. The gang makes big plans, a.k.a. the one where Tywin can't prove Tyrion isn't his. Davos 1. National Lampoon's Blackwater Vacation, a.k.a. the one where Davos is stranded. Sansa won. The gang wants Sansa for Willis, a.k.a. the Queen of Thorns gets her cheese. John won. The gang meets Mance, a.k.a. the one where John lies well. <laughs> and Daenerys won. The gang goes to Slaver's Bay, a.k.a. the one where Jorah gets frisky. Thanks to everyone who came and attended. Thanks to all the live viewers. Thanks to everyone who catches it later. Big thanks to anyone who likes, shares, upvotes. You would be surprised how much those things matter. YouTube comments matter. iTunes reviews matter a lot. Um, and just anything you can do, we appreciate. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valerie Reedus music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for helping us find him and for the wonderful maps you see behind us and for so many other things Michael Klarfeld does. Can, by, by the way, yeah. I, I uh, want to mention that he's currently doing um, his reach map. So if you think you have a certain reach man, reach woman look, reach out to us. We're doing it all through Facebook. So if you don't have a Facebook, it's a little difficult for you to be part of it, unfortunately. But we're still looking for people. And in particular, we are looking for people of an older age, at least 30 
again, we most need people that are in like their fifties and sixties. Um, yeah. So just FYI, please yeah, so email e- us. Even if you have a, a relative who's keen, <laughs> who just wants to be a model for a, a map, a Song of Ice and Fire map. Well, Ashe and I have done it before. A lot of people who are in our Facebook group have made it onto these maps in, in, in model form. This is a fun fact. I'm in every episode, actually, on camera. Because <laughs> if you look right next to Aziz, there's my little face. Right? Oh, the weeping lady. Sadly yep. weeping, but not really weeping. She's just acting. Oh, I, I weep all the time. I'm on this map also, but I don't make it on camera because I'm up near the top. <laughs> yeah, only your lower half is right now, which is oh, yeah. funny because it's the opposite of, of you. <laughs> That's true. My lower half can't be seen on camera here, but but it can be seen on the map. <laughs> nice. Thanks to our Facebook mods for posting the chapters each week and leading the discussions on each individual chapter. Also, each chapter post contains awesome fan art. Well, just art. It's not always fan art. Sometimes it's official art, but it's usually fan art. And there is so much good fan art out there. And it's, well, I don't even need to call it fan art. It's just art. It's great art, period. Whatever you want to call it, it's great. And there's a lot of it on our Facebook page getting showcased there. So good reason to come on over and check that out. All right. That does it. Did I forget any thanks? I actually forgot to write thanks out here, so I'm doing it by memory. Thanks again to all our patrons, of course. Y'all are the reason we have the lights on and the show going. Check out historyofwesteros.com on Patreon if you want to join up and find a level that's right for you with the benefits that appeal to you. And uh, maybe we'll give you your shout-outs and names and all that. We do those during our live streams and scripted episodes. But that does cover it. Unless I missed anything or any last questions... We will see you next time for week two of A Storm of Swords. You know what to do in the meantime, folks. Valar, reread us.